Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, as usual, we're going to have our Minute on Innovation with Christina Sikiotis, and we're going to be talking about how to secure senior management buy-in for innovation. We're also having our regular chat with Brett Gleeson from the Business Growth Centre. Today we're going to be talking about coping with change. But right now we're going to have a chat with Rebecca McKenzie about general skilled migration. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Good afternoon, Julian. Well, thank you once again for joining us. It's been a while since we've had a chat. Yes, it has. So thank you very much for having me back on your show. And uh, I I know that the uh, migration law in Australia is a massive area, but can you give us just a bit of an overview about it? Yep, sure, Julian. It is a massive area of law, as you've identified. Um, Some say that it's actually in line with, um, in both complexity and volume, to the taxation laws in Australia. So it is a huge area. I guess um, the best place to start would be to say that Australia regulates its borders by requiring all non-citizens, so people who are not Australian citizens, who wish to travel here or remain in Australia to have a valid visa. So a visa is basically a document setting out the basis upon which a non-citizen has the right to enter or remain in Australia. So if someone enters Australia without a valid visa or remains here without a valid visa, then they can be what is called an unlawful non-citizen and may be deported back to their country of origin. So what the government of the day does is determine the amount of people allowed to migrate to Australia um, by setting limits on the number of visas that can be granted in any given year. At the same time as this process, the Australian Parliament controls the types of people migrating to Australia by creating different types of visas. So currently there are over 150 or so types of visas within our visa system. And then within those visas, they're divided into various classes and subclasses of which there are once again many. So it's not just a massive area of law. We've got all these visas to deal with. How how about uh, what are the different types of visas available then? Well, very basically, I would categorise the different types of visas into four main areas. So you've got your permanent visas. Now, these visas entitle a person to remain in Australia indefinitely. You've also got what's called temporary visas, and these visas authorise a temporary stay subject to various conditions, of course. Um, There are protection visas. These are for people who have been granted refugee status. And there are also bridging visas, rather. Now, these bridging visas allow for temporary lawful presence in Australia for someone who would otherwise be unlawful. Um, For example, someone whose visa has expired and they're in the process of transitioning from one visa to another. Um, So within these broad categories, though, there are a whole host of different subcategories. So there are visas for international students, for example. There are partner visas and family visas, just to name a few. Um, What I would like to concentrate on today, though, given the nature of your program, Julian, uh, is the general skilled migration stream of visas as they relate to business and skills and the employment context. So, So we're talking about general skilled migration. What's that all about? How can we help our listeners there? Well, um, firstly, Julian, I'll start by saying the skilled migration stream is in place in Australia to fill 
skill shortages in our labour market. So the next step from there is to determine what actual skills or jobs are in shortage. And for this purpose, the Department of Immigration and Citizenship publishes what is called the Skilled Occupation List, or the SOL, in order to outline what skills are required to be filled in Australia. Um, now, that list is extensive, and it covers occupations from technical trades to engineers and nurses and architects. And, and very broadly, Julian, we can classify the skilled migration scheme into three main areas. So there's general skilled migration and there's employer-nominated migration, which some of your listeners may have heard of, and also business skills migration. Um, so within these categories, there are differences in terms of whether a particular skilled worker can um, come here and work independently, given, for example, their English language skills and their level of experience or qualification, or whether they require nomination and sponsorship by an employer or a relative that is a citizen here or the government. Um, with the employer-nominated migration scheme, for example, uh, the process is quite complex. It's actually a three-fold process. So in a very general sense, an employer can apply to become a sponsor for a skilled worker. And then once approved, that employer can then nominate a particular worker for a job and then the skilled worker applies for the relevant visa. So there are quite a few stages there involved in that process. Um, there are also different types of visas for skilled migrants who are prepared to work in regional areas of Australia and there are different requirements um, and permanent residency pathways attached to those visas. So uh, obviously this requires some legal advice. So who, who can give legal advice in this matter? That's a good question, Julian, because some people think that just a regular lawyer can give immigration advice, but there are, in fact, federal laws which regulate who can provide immigration advice in Australia and also regulating the conduct of those people providing such advice. And so, subject to some limited exceptions, a person who's giving immigration advice must be what's called a registered migration agent. And there are actually only three of us in Newcastle who are registered agents and also lawyers. So if a person require, has an issue or requires some advice, they need to seek out one of these people? Yes, Julian, I would recommend that, that anyone needing immigration advice consult with a qualified registered agent, um, because the thing is, the regulations themselves surrounding pretty much every single aspect of the visa process. They're very complex and something as simple as sending the visa application to a post office box as opposed to the application being couriered to a street address, for example, can actually invalidate the entire application. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example of the checks and balances that really must be undertaken in relation to every visa application prior to lodgement. Um, because believe it or not, requirements like whether something has to be posted or couriered um, and also the exact visa application charge, for example, can and do regularly change in the regulations. So you've got to make sure that you get it right the first time. And I presume the government has set some fees for, uh, for the, these uh, consultations? 
Yes, that's right. Well, there are generally two or more aspects to the costs involved with visas. There is the visa application charge, which is called the VAC or the VAC, and that's a fee set by the government for all visa applications. And that fee can vary from hundreds of dollars to many thousands of dollars, depending on the type of visa. And then on top of that, if the visa applicant does engage a professional to assist them, then there are obviously the professional costs associated with the preparation and lodgement of the visa application, which of course will vary. Well, great. Thank you very much for your time again, Rebecca, and uh, we'll have a chat with you again another time. Wonderful. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rebecca McKenzie there from Baker Love, helping us to understand uh, that process there of bringing in that skilled migration. Uh, You're listening to Business, The Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to cross over to the Business Growth Centre and have a chat with Brett Gleeson there. Good afternoon, Brett. Hi, Julian. So uh, last week we were talking about uh, the role of leadership and one of the things we mentioned was coping with change. It seems a little bit difficult for people to be able to do that these days. Yeah, in some cases uh, they do find it a bit challenging. I guess in other cases uh, people go with the flow a bit bit better than others and a lot will depend on the culture in the in the business um, and what the approach is to the change and, and the individual's, I guess, previous experience will also cloud cloud their judgment sometimes so if the culture is positive to change and change is welcomed uh, and the employee sort of knows what the benefits will be then they generally you, know, you get a good result but if there's a negative culture to change and the previous experiences have not been so good then implementing some more change is uh, you know just seen as a you know, compounding factor and uh, it's only going you know, harder to get a good result and uh, so I guess the, the the approach of the leader uh, is that the business owner, the manager, the supervisor, or the team leader, um, if their approach is is positive, engaging, and consultative, uh, with good communication, then you generally get a good result at the end of it. But if it's an autocratic, directive um, approach where you're uh, sort of second guessing and trying to read their mind, then um, there's often a, a fair bit of resistance and even some sabotage in in some cases. So. You've got, to, you know, you've got to think about it from the employee's mm. point of view. If you're trying to affect change, then uh, you've got to look at it from their point of view and um, try and anticipate uh, how they might um, you know, respond. So, so you've, mentioned, you've mentioned the way we communicate it. How do we actually go about managing the change? Well, there's, uh, the model I use, there are six components of, of effective change implementation and those steps are having a clear vision about what it is that you want to change and what the end result would look like and how you might get from A to, a to B. The second part is you need to model the, model the way. So don't expect other people to change if you're not prepared to change yourself or be a part of the change process. There has to be a need for change. If there isn't a need, then people you know, generally won't do it. There's also got to be the capacity to change. So to tell people they need to change doing something without giving them the infrastructure or the computer or, or whatever else is to do it, is, is going to lead you to failure. So you've got to give them the, the capacity to actually change. That could just be some training or some information or you know, explain the process. There's also got to be some actual first steps. So someone has to do something to start the process, otherwise it won't, won't get started. And then it needs to be reinforced and consolidated. So when you are getting some traction and a change is happening, then that needs to be recognised and people need to be acknowledged for that. Uh, and the result is when you start to achieve the results, then 
you reinforce why you did the change in the first place so people actually see the benefit of it. So mm. if you can do those things, then you're, you've got a pretty good process. If you don't do any one of those um, components, then the result will be less than what you would have wanted desired. So if there's no vision um, and no no end result in mind, then things might kick off really quickly, but they'll fizzle out. Um, if you don't model the way, then people will go, well, you know, he or she expects me to change, but not prepared to change themselves. You know, that's the typical yeah. thing. You know, do what yeah. I do, what I say, not what I do. Um, if there's no pressure to change, then nothing will get done. If there's no capacity to change, people will be uh, anxious about that. I've, I've been told to change, but I'm not being helped to do that. Um, and if there's no first steps, then people don't know where to start. And, uh, and if you don't reward people for getting the good results that you're trying to achieve, well, then they'll be, you know, they'll become a bit skeptical about the whole whole process. So, so the change management process is is um, might seem a bit complicated, but there's just those six components to it. And if you do those six components, then you know, you're pretty you're pretty close to the mark. Oh, great. Well, thanks very much for your time again, Brett. Um, next week we might have a look at that entre- entrepreneurial mindset. Okay, yeah. And certainly being entrepreneur means there will be lots of change. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it flows on quite nicely to, to uh, for what we've been talking about. Yeah, good. We'll talk to you next week. Great. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye. Peace out, bye. Brick Leeson there from the Business Growth Centre, helping us to understand those six steps to... Uh, uh, implementing change. Well, now it's time for our minute on innovation with Christina Sikiotis from the project manager from Create and Innovate at Hunter TAFE. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. Thank you once again for joining us. And today we're going to talk about how to secure that senior management buy-in for innovation. Absolutely. So senior management really need to own the idea of innovating and that's not to be confused with senior management doing the innovating. They need to understand what they're trying to achieve. Are they after the big bang innovation or the baby step version? And and both are great. The biggest barriers to innovation are cultural inertia, the way we've always done things mentality, and fear. So does senior management have a culture of fear or of encouragement when it comes to innovation? They must support it in practice, not just in principle. We actually went into a medium-sized organisation at the request of senior management and did some work encouraging their middle management to engage in innovation. But before we went in, we had senior management agree to support that innovation in a number of practical ways. It should never be just a feel-good attempt by senior management. They need to commit to some form of risk-taking, flexibility and especially reward and recognition. Innovation is a long-term effort, and that's where you really do need the commitment. Find out what your clients and customers want. That's a great starting point for any innovative practices. I heard a great story this morning. There were two mothers about to re-enter the workforce, but they didn't have the corporate outfit for the interview. They went to a second-hand store, bought some clothes, made some alterations, put a couple of outfits together to wear just to the interview. It was low investment because they weren't assured of getting the job, and that was the beginning of their new business. They hired out corporate outfits. Excellent. Fantastic. What a good example. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you very much for your time again, Christina. And uh, next week we're going to have a look at who should be involved in innovation. We shall. Have have a a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina Sikiotis there from the TAFE, helping us to understand the importance of innovation, but more important, how we get senior management buy-in. And just to follow that one up, there's a little tip here from the Harvard Business Review called Put Yourself in Your Customer's Shoes. If your company is looking to innovate... Don't waste time analysing market research reports and delving into customer data. What customers say they will do is not necessarily what they end up doing. 
Instead, put yourself in your customer's shoes. Observe them using products and watch for frustrations that they may, may, they may not even notice. Don't delegate their explorations to the market research consultants. Do it yourself. Make sure senior people in your organisation, those who have the strategic understanding to recognise opportunity and the authority to act on it, get out and observe the customers too. And that's taken from a book, How to Get Past Your Customers' Lies, by Alessandra Defoy. And that's an interesting summary, isn't that, for uh, Christina's little comment there on innovation. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you enjoyed the program. We've looked at uh, uh, migration or the uh, important process of bringing that skilled migration into Australia. We've also spoken with uh, Brett Gleeson from the Business Growth Centre about coping with change. Next week, we're going to have a look at the entrepreneurial mindset with Brett Gleeson from the Business Growth Centre. We'll discuss who should be involved in innovation with Christina Sikiotis, and we'll have some more tips to motivate you and improve your business. I'd love your company again at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week. And as Bill Gates once said, leaders will be those who empower others.